Well, good morning, Lone Oak. So good to see you. I've missed you this past week and so excited to be with you. Hey, you're going to need to turn your Bibles or your device to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, if you can find that there in the Old Testament. And uh, as we prepare to hear what God might say to us today, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and for Your grace. Lord, You are indeed our source of hope and strength during times of tragedy, times of need. And Lord, we want to proclaim the goodness of our God. I pray you would speak to our hearts today. Give us a picture of your glory. Speak through me. Help me to be your messenger to your people to deliver your message for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I received a gift this morning. Uh, Your choir was so generous and gave me a gift. It says, to Michael Cavill from the choir. And I opened this up today, and you'll never guess what's inside. It is a magnetic dress-up Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Yes, isn't that awesome? Those of you who were uh, not here last week, I did a a whole Won't You Be My Neighbor, Mr. Rogers thing. In fact, I got a wonderful drawing from Isaac at the end of the service last week that looked just like me and my Mr. Rogers attire. Uh, I absolutely love this. Thank you, choir, for for that. Uh, My wife uh, carries with me today. Uh, We celebrate, this Wednesday will be our 21st wedding anniversary, so we're kind of making a weekend uh, of it. We went kayaking yesterday at Lake Barkley. You all have such a beautiful area here in West uh, Kentucky. I don't know if you realize it. If you travel much throughout the state, I travel all throughout the state. I've told my wife over and over and over, West Kentucky is uh, just top notch. We are kayaking there at the sunset. Just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, So Wednesday will be our anniversary. So we'll probably be spending Wednesday night watching one of her, her favorite Hallmark movies. Uh, any Hallmark fans out there? Uh, the one thing I like about Hallmark movies is if I fall asleep halfway through one and I wake up midway through the next one, I feel like I've not lost anything. <laughs> same plot, same story. I, I, was, I was ragging on Hallmark movies uh, at a church <laughs> a while back, and this lady came up to me at the end of the service. She goes, you can, you can stomp on my toes. You can chastise my children. You can say I'm in sin, but don't you dare mess with my Hallmark movies. <laughs> So I got to be I got to be careful uh, about that. Well, as we go into Ruth, the story of Ruth over Ruth uh, um, over four weeks, Ruth chapters one through four, it plays out a bit like a Hallmark movie, except this one is true. It's got all the sto- all the elements of a great story: tragedy, intrigue, generosity, compassion, love, romance. And we're going to go verse by verse through all four chapters of Ruth. We're going to look at chapter 1 today. And we're just going to let the story unfold. I know many of you know the story. I don't want you to think ahead. If you don't know the story, I don't want you to read ahead. I want us to think, here's what these characters are experiencing. What these people, not characters, but these real life people, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, what they're experiencing as we dive in to the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. And if you look, if you're on Ruth 1, if you just look at the page to your left, that's going to be the book of Judges. The very last verse of the book of Judges really tells us what's going on culturally in Israel during this time. Here's what it says. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. 
There's no king in the land. There's no authority. Everyone's doing whatever they think is right. It's my truth. I develop my own truth, and that's what I'm going to do. Does it sound like any other generation you've heard of? We're we're living the days of the judges. What we think is right is what we are going to do. And so Israel is full of sin. It's full of disobedience. And then we open up Ruth chapter 1. I believe chapter 1 is divided. I could divide it into three acts or three scenes. The first scene is tragedy. If you're taking sermon notes, write that word down. Tragedy. In the days, Ruth 1.1, when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There's a famine in Bethlehem, which is um, uh, probably rare because Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread. It was known as the breadbasket there of of, uh, ancient Israel. It's kind of like going to Chick-fil-A and them saying, hey, we're out of chicken. That's how rare it would have been for Bethlehem to be out of bread. But because a famine has struck, This man and his wife and his two kids moved to Moab. The famine must have been really, really severe for him to move to Moab. Moab was that detestable place where the detestable people lived. The Moabites started in Genesis chapter 19 when Lot had an incestual relationship with his daughter. And from that sprung the Moabites. When Moses and the children of of Israel were marching around in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, the people of Moab would not let them pass through. And God ordered the death of 24,000 of them. The Moabite women were known as um, uh, women who would chase after men and uh, sexually perverse and uh, people who followed false gods. But because of a famine, this man takes his family to shameful Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, this guy's name is Elimelech. This is an important point. If you're a person who underlines or stars in your Bible, underline this name because the name Elimelech means God is king. So get this, at a time of the judges when Israel has no king, the story is about a man whose name means God is king. That there's at least one family left who's still honoring God and following the Lord's commands. He has a wife named Naomi. Her name uh, would have meant sweetness or pleasant or, or sweetie pie, if you would think. So you've got Sweetie Pie and God is King. And evidently they were big Star Trek fans because they named their sons Malon and Kilion. Aren't those Star Trek sounding names? Well, the names actually are names for frailty. Uh, it's kind of like naming your kids swine flu and whooping cough. That's what it would be like. <laughs> so these two frail boys and their parents move to Moab. They don't intend to be gone forever because they've got a track of land back in Bethlehem that they're not selling. They're planning to go to Moab for a short time and then they'll head back to their land in Bethlehem. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other named Ruth. So upon Elimelech's death, Naomi's sons do the most dreadful thing possible. They marry Moabite women. I mean, these boys were supposed to return to Jerusalem and marry marry, uh, nice Jewish ladies. Return to Bethlehem and, and marry some nice Jewish girl who loves the Lord. But no, they marry Moabite women. Verse 5, and after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. 
And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Naomi looks around. She has no husband alive. Her two sons have both died. She's in a foreign land and all she has left are two Moabite daughters-in-law. To heighten the fact of this story, to heighten the picture of this story, is Naomi's living in a time when women did not have the same rights as men. Women could not own property. Um, And so Naomi needed a man to help her. Ruth and, and Orpha needed a man. Thankfully, we do not live in a culture now that is like that. Women are very independent. Some of our greatest leaders are, are women. We're thankful for the way Jesus treated women. But here we see in the book of Ruth, these ladies are childless, in search of a family, and in search of food. The reason a family was so important is that's how your retirement was funded. You would have a son, and... Uh, the, your, your farm would transfer to your son and the income they earned off the farm would be helped to raise you and then your grandson would get that and his family would farm the farm and some of that income would help take care of grandma and grandpa. So in this moment, not only has Naomi lost her family, she's lost her future. Her 401k is gone. And just like that, a 10-year nightmare is summed up in five short verses. Lost her family, lost her husband, lost her joy, lost her hope. Imagine the disappointment. At Christmas time every year, our family goes through this process of decorating our house for Christmas. And we all have our same jobs we do year in, year out. My wife and our two teenage daughters, their job is to decorate the inside of the house and my teenage son and I, our job is to decorate the outside of the house. I don't know how your family does it, but that's how we do it. And for years, my children have been wanting one of those outdoor blow-up inflatable Christmas decorations. You know what I'm talking about? You can see like a Santa Claus or a Rudolph all blow up out in the yard. Well, Carrie is a really traditionalist when it comes to Christmas decorations. So for years, she's not wanted to put those blow-ups out in the yard. But the kids beg incessantly year after year after year, we want a blow-up in the yard. And so finally, about two years ago, she gives in and says, okay, this year we can get a blow-up. And the kids are going crazy. I'm going crazy. We're going to get the blow-up of all blow-ups. And I'm in staff meeting at the church I was serving. And we had a staff of probably about 14 or 15 people in our room. And I'm telling them this story about Carrie said I could get a blow-up for our yard. And the youth pastor said, oh, you'll never believe this. I found a website that sells discount Christmas decorations. That sounds like great to me. And he pulls it up, and there on this website, they have, get this, a 26-foot-tall Santa Claus. There's a picture of what's on the website. Now, that's not my family. This is the web ad. 26-foot-tall Santa Claus for $38. Sold. I mean, it's like divine intervention at that point. And so I buy it, obviously. The youth pastor buys one. The associate pastor buys one. The ministry, one of the ministry assistants buy one. And we're all going to order these 26-foot-tall Santa Clauses. And we pay our $38. And it's coming, it's shipping from somewhere in Asia. And it says it's going to take three or four weeks. I'm like, that's fine. This is middle October. We've got plenty of time for it to come in. And so I'm following the tracking information. I see it's supposed to arrive this certain Friday in in November. Now, here's the thing. If you ever want to surprise your family with a 26-foot-tall Santa Claus, you don't have it shipped to the house. All right, I had it shipped to my work. had it shipped to the church so that my picture... Here's what I was picturing. My wife drives home from school. She's a teacher. 
The kids get off the school bus, and there in the yard is the mecca of all Santa Claus blow-up lawn decorations. Taller than our house. And so I go in the office. I'm so giddy to open this up. And I go to the box in my office, and I go to open up my 26-foot-tall Santa Claus, and this is what was inside. A six-inch plush. It wasn't just me. This is what the youth pastor got in the mail, what the associate pastor got in the mail, what the ministry assistant got in the mail. We go to the website, and the website no longer existed. And here's what we found out. It was a scam where they were selling discount Christmas decorations, a 26-foot-tall Santa for $38, and if they showed PayPal that they shipped out the item, then they received payment, and then they shut down their business. And so I was left with a $38 sermon illustration. (laughs) I was so disappointed because I had these big dreams. This 26-foot-tall Santa is going to wow the neighborhood. It's going to wow my kids. I'm a shoe-in for dad of the year with a 26-foot-tall Santa Claus that ended up being a 6-inch-tall plush. I'm thinking, do you put this thing in water and it grows? You put a hose up to it and pump it up? What what, what happens? My 26-foot-tall dream turned into this. Do you have some 26-foot-tall dreams? Maybe you've dreamt of a 26-foot-tall retirement or a 26-foot-tall marriage or a 26-foot-tall career or a 26-foot-tall dream of starting your own business. But it didn't turn out that way. And instead of your 26-foot-tall dream, what you got was something that looks a lot like this. And that's where Naomi was. She had this 26-foot-tall dream. We're going to go to Moab for a short period of time. We're going to make sure our family has food. We're going to return to Bethlehem, that track of land that we own, and we're going to farm it. And I'm going to grow up, and my two boys, Malon and Kilion, they're going to marry these nice Jewish women, and we're going to have a great family. I'm going to have grandchildren to rock on my knee, and I'm going to grow old with Elimelech. It's going to be a wonderful story. But her 26-foot-tall dream turned into a six-inch plush. Her husband died. Her sons died. They have no children, and she's caught in a barren land. Scene one ends with this tragedy, and then scene two starts with a decision, a decision. When Naomi heard in Moab, this is verse 6, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, all that's left is Naomi and these two daughters-in-law. I don't know what your relationship is with your mother-in-law or with your daughter-in-law. I have a wonderful relationship with my mother-in-law. Carrie does as well. Um, But some of you may not. You know, stereotypically, those are rocky situations. Any of you ever grew up or anybody ever watched Everybody Loves Raymond? And see the relationship between Marie and uh, Deborah. I remember one episode they asked Deborah, hey, do you ever miss Marie? And she says, if I ever miss Marie, I'd reload and shoot again. That may may describe some of your mother-in-law relationship. So that's all that's left. These two daughters-in-law and their mother-in-law. Then Naomi, verse 8, said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and goodbye and they wept aloud. This is more than a goodbye and a God bless you. This is a, it is better for you to go home to your mother. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because there's people there. There's family there. Maybe somebody will seek to care for me. But there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Orpha and Ruth, what's best for you is to go back with your mom and dad to find a husband who's a nice Moabite young man to have a family, to stay here, and to find joy and happiness here in Moab. But me, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And they begin to weep. You can picture this, can't you? These women have been through such tragedy. The people you've been through tragedy with who are there by your side, and maybe you've experienced that before, this weeping. Together. And they've got a decision. Do we go with Naomi? Do we stay here in Moab? This gut-wrenching conversation continues. Verse 10. And, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who can come become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have, any, uh, to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's better for you than, it's, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi Provides a convincing argument. In those days, if you, if your husband passed away, the brother of your husband was obligated to marry you. So if your brother's wife, your sister-in-law passed away and you're a man, you would be obligated to marry her to bring her into the family so that the family can continue. And any children you have from that relationship go by the name of their father, your brother. And what she's saying is, I'm never going to have other kids. There's not going to be someone to come marry you who's in our family line. And so it's better for you to stay here than to go with me. In verse 14, and they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Orpha leaves. She goes back. We can't blame her for the decision she made. But it says in verse, 10, verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi's saying there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Go back. Stay in Moab. And in response, Ruth gives one of the most emotional and well-known speeches in the entire Bible. She says in verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Ruth is making a decision. Her decision is, I'm going with you. And she uses this poem. It's, it's, in Hebrew, it's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And a chiastic structure for poetry means that the first verse and the last verse match. And then the second verse matches the second to last verse. Not, not word for word, but the, the theme of those verses. And what you look for in Hebrew chiastic structures, what's the middle verse? 
Because every verse builds its way to the middle, the point, the peak of the pyramid of the verse. And here's what the middle verse is of this poem that Ruth is saying. It's this. Your people will be my people and your God my God. She's making a profession of faith. She's saying, I'm turning to God. I'm turning to the Lord. You know, tragedy has a way of making us turn. Either turning toward God or turning away from God. That we all have a decision to make when we face tragedy. Either turning toward God or turning away from God. And in the, 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 the magnitude of this moment, you see Ruth saying, I'm following you and I'm following God. Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So you got these two women, an old um, Jewish lady who's lost her husband and sons, and then a young Moabite woman who's lost her husband, who's a widow, and they're heading back to Bethlehem. They're in need of food, and they're in need of a family. And in verse 19, so when the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, when they arrived in Bethlehem, The whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? The people were surprised. They had no updates on Naomi. This must have been before Facebook was invented. They didn't know what Naomi was up to. And so they're curious. Naomi's return, but where's Malon? Where's Kilion? Where's Elimelech? And who is this Moabite woman you brought back with you? Don't call me Naomi, verse 20, she says. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Remember her name meant pleasant, lovely, sweet. She's saying, I am no longer a pleasant, lovely, sweet person. I'm a bitter person. God has made me bitter. God has brought tragedy on my life. I don't like him for it. I hate him for it. And I'm a bitter woman. Call me Mara. That's the Hebrew word meaning bitter. You see, while Ruth turned toward God in tragedy, we see Naomi turning away from God in tragedy. Which way have you turned in your tragedy? Turn to trust God or turn to bitterness? Folks, the reality of Scripture is that Christians, we're not immune to tragedy. Jesus didn't say we're going to go through life and have no problems. We experience tragedy and tragedy helps us long more for heaven where there will be no more tragedy. And so how do we deal with tragedy when it strikes Maybe you've had that happen. Or maybe you need to prepare for that to happen. Maybe you're catching a plane at the Nashville airport or sitting at a restaurant on Hinkleville Road or driving to work. When you get a phone call that forever changes your life. And in that moment... How do you respond? Do we respond by trusting God or by turning 
in bitterness. I saw a picture of this many years ago. I was a collegiate campus minister at a school in Indiana, and we had a boy in our campus ministry named Ben. Ben played the bass guitar and was on our student leadership council, 19 years old, wonderful man. I felt like the Lord might be calling him to ministry. He just showed all those, those gifts and that great warmth for the word of the Lord. And Ben was spending his summer after his sophomore year at home working for a landscaping company, and he came home from work one day, laid down on his parents' couch, went to sleep, and never woke up. The coroner said that he died of heat exhaustion from working so hard out in the sun that day. I remember going to his funeral that summer and his casket up in front of the church, and I was privileged enough to stay in the room while most people had gone because I was one of the ministers and watching the way his father responded. I don't know how I would respond at that moment. Maybe some of you have been in that moment. And I watched that father lay down at the casket, his face in the carpet, his hands outstretched on the floor. And he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and you take away, but I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had, he had decided in tragedy to trust God. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Ruth's in a strange place, no husband around people that are not going to like her on a quest for family and food. That wraps up the decision part. And then section three, we see hope. Hope. Hope is found just in the last half of the last verse of chapter one. It says this, the depressing first chapter closes with a glimpse of hope. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the, har as the barley harvest was beginning. Remember, they've been through a famine for some time. And at the moment that they're returning, they're starting to harvest the barley. The, the, the famine is over. The, 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 the harvest has returned. And in this moment, we see this new life coming to Bethlehem as they seek to go back into the town. And we're going to see that God's going to use this harvest in chapters 2, 3, and 4 to orchestrate his great plan in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. But yet they don't see it yet. In fact, David Platt said this quote, and I love it. In his sovereign design, God ordained sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. In his sovereign design, God ordained sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for his surprising triumph. So when everything seems foreign, and we're in a land where we don't know, when death strikes our family and the pain doesn't seem to go away, when despair sinks in, when we have loneliness and our barrenness and our grief, in all these things, we can still have hope. We still have hope. Because there was another young lady that one day would come to Bethlehem and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. And he would grow 
And he would talk about these challenges that we face in life, death and cancer and sickness and job loss and pain and prodigal children. And he, he says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says we're going to have trouble in this world. We're going to have tragedy. We're going to have pain in this world. But take peace. I've overcome the world. And if you remain in me, you will have peace. That we worship a God who does, is not immune to pain. You remember the shortest verse in the entire Bible. You probably memorized it for a stick of candy when you were a small kid, right? What's the shortest verse in the entire Bible? Just two words. Jesus wept. Think about that. The creator of the universe, the one who scooped out the rivers and formed the mountains, is now weeping over the tomb of a friend he so dearly loved. He knows what it's like to feel like you have felt. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the midst of our tragedy, we have a decision. Turn to God in trust or turn away from God in bitterness. Ron Dunn was a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who lost his young adult son to suicide. He took a few months away from the church and really dealt with the spiritual, emotional pain of his son's death. Perhaps some of you know what that's like. And even years later, you can feel that pain, even as I'm sharing my words. Ron talked in one of his books about how it was only by his love for Jesus, the hope of the gospel, that he was able to deal with the grief of his son's tragic death. He returned and began preaching, and it changed the way he preached as a preacher dealing with people and trying to urge them toward hope because Christ had given him hope. One Sunday, about a year after his son's death, a lady came to him at the end of the service and looked him in the eye, a lady he did not recognize, and said, Pastor, it's so good to see you smile. He said, well, thank you very much. I've had a difficult time, but I have a lot now to smile about. She said, well, Pastor, I want to tell you again, it is so good to see you smile. Well, thank you again for saying that, but it's only because of the hope of Christ in my life that enables me to smile amid, amid difficult times. She said, Pastor, you have no idea why I keep saying that, do you? He said, no, I have no idea why you keep telling me it's good to see me smile. She said, well, I heard that you lost your son about a year ago. And about six weeks ago, my son also committed suicide. And I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I feel like I would just want to take my own life because of the pain I feel every single day. I had a friend that invited me to come to church. She told me your story that you had also lost a son in similar circumstances. And so I chose to come here. She said she thought maybe you would say something that would help me. But I came here, Pastor, not to hear you. I came here to watch you and it's so good to see you smile 
Because if you can smile after the loss of your son, then maybe there's some hope in Jesus that I could smile again too. Some of you in this room have been through unimaginable tragedy. I don't have to list the options because you know them well. Some of you have cried tears in your pillow. You've driven miles in the car. You've not wanted to leave the house. Some of you have endured difficult pain, and maybe you are right now. But in those times, you've chosen to turn and trust. And if you have, I just want you to know, because of Jesus, it's so good to see you smile. Let's stand as we pray. Father, it is our privilege to be your people. And Lord, we know that it's only because of Jesus and what he's done that we're able to live. Only because of Christ and what he's done that we're able to have hope. It's only because of Christ overcoming the world that we can have peace during times of tragedy. And Lord, we don't want to smile like fake people, but we smile because we have hope and joy that can only come from you. This world can never restore us after the pain we've experienced, but we know you can. So I pray during those times of great difficulty, we would not turn away in bitterness, but Lord, help us have the faith to turn toward you in trust. For the glory of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.